may be seated. Father, I ask that you would help us um, this morning to to understand your word, to apply it to our lives. Lord, may we uh, see you. May we experience your love. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Have you ever thought about why insurance exists? Any kind of insurance, car insurance, health insurance, rental insurance. Why, why does it exist? It's not a trick question. Insurance exists because stuff happens. And there might be similar sayings, but we'll go with that. Stuff happens. And we know that in life, stuff happens, and we don't want to be put uh, into a situation that we can't easily get out of. Sometimes stuff happens to us that's outside of our control. Just over six years ago, three days before my birthday, a friend and I were, uh, I was driving a friend home from Bible study, and we were uh, at a red light and about to cross through an intersection to get onto the freeway. Light turns green, we enter the intersection, I see out of the corner of my eye a car coming at a speed that doesn't make sense given that I have the green light. And before I could fully process that, my car is T-boned on the passenger side and immediately the car stops, starts to spin out of control. So it's like dancing across multiple lanes of traffic. And it's amazing how much, how clearly I could think in that moment as the car is spinning around and I'm looking. And the only thing I can really think about is I don't want another car to hit us again while we're spinning out of control. Thankfully, the car came to a stop. Miraculously, I was fine. My passenger was also fine. Pastor may, pastor may or may not be in this room. And uh, I remember getting out, and, and the, the, the driver who hit us said, he was just profusely apologetic. He's like, I, I didn't see the red light. I'm so sorry. Um, the good thing is we were okay. Now, I knew there was very little that I could do in that moment. All I could do was hope that another car wouldn't hit us, that we, would, that we would somehow be okay. Now, the car was totaled, um, and thankfully, we, I did have insurance. And insurance paid the thousands of dollars to replace the car. It was able to save me from that financial burden. But... As I was spinning out of control, you want to know how much comfort insurance gave me? Zero. Absolutely zero comfort. Because insurance, while it can pay for financial burden, it can't save me from disaster. And in that moment, that's what I needed. Not money to pay for the car. I needed to be saved from impending disaster. What do you do when you're in a situation where life seems to start spinning out of control? 
There comes a point in life where you realize that at some level you don't have the buttons to push, the levers to pull, or the logic or the words to get yourself out of a situation. Where do you turn to? Who do you turn to? The Bible teaches us that actually all of life, the entirety of it, is like a situation where you're spinning out of control. We don't have as much control as we think we do. And the reason why it spin, life spins out of control is because of something called sin. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans describes it uh, as the world being in bondage or, or in slavery to sin or corruption. And, and we've come back to this idea in the Advent series of, of brokenness. That the world is broken. We know it. The world is not the way it ought to be. It's broken. And that's the reason why we celebrate the coming of someone who would fix that brokenness. Some of us like to think we have everything in control. That we've got the, the steering wheel of our lives firmly in our grip. And that some way, somehow, we're, we're going to be able to navigate just rightly if we have the right insurance, if we have the right contingency plans, if we have the right education and knowledge, if we have enough money that we can, we can navigate any obstacle in life. But it's just not true. What we need is not resourcing. We need rescue. What we need is not improved steering. We need salvation. And that's the message of the whole Bible. In the Gospel of Matthew, the angel of the Lord announces where this salvation would come from when he says in verse 21, She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. Christmas is a time of reflecting on the birth and arrival of this Savior who is named Jesus. And Jesus literally means God saves. It's built into his name what his purpose was. And the question for us this morning is what would motivate God to do such a thing? What would motivate God to send his son into the world to be the savior of our sins? And the motivation is clear. It's love. And one of the most famous verses in all the Bible, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The answer is love, and this is the fourth and final theme of Advent, love. And I'd like to explore God's love for us in three ways. The first is God's love for us in being served by Jesus. The second is God's love for us in being rescued by Jesus. And the third is God's love for us in being empowered by Jesus. Three ways in which God demonstrates his love for us in the life of Jesus. As we look at how God has loved us in the life of Jesus or through the birth of Jesus, the first the first thing that we encounter is Jesus' service to us. 
So that's the first idea we're going to look at. Now, before getting married to Stephanie, I thought a lot about the vows that I would make to her. And I wanted uh, my vows to be the right combination of words arranged in just the right way and said with just the right emotion so that she would never doubt my love for her. In fact, I thought if I could do a really great job with my vows, why would she ever need any further evidence of my love for her? She wouldn't eat flowers or chocolate or me to help her with the dishes, right? She has my vows. In fact, I even framed my vows to her and placed it on our dresser so that whenever she doubts my love for her, she can look at those vows. Who needs to wash the dishes? She has my words. Bad idea. Here's the point. Love cannot be merely articulated, but it must be demonstrated. Love cannot be merely articulated, it must be demonstrated. It's not enough to know that God is love. It's not enough to know that God says he loves us. We must also see in tangible ways God's love for us. And it's not to say that words are unimportant. But articulation without subsequent demonstration leads to empty words. Right? If, if, if I just, if I never washed the dishes, if I never gave her chocolate, if I never served Stephanie, she would begin to doubt the vows that I made to her on our wedding day. You need both words and to back it up through tangible demonstration. And this is what God does. This is the first way that we see God's love for us through Jesus. And and if you will, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. It will also be up on the screen. It's the love of Jesus demonstrated in the action of God to send Jesus into our world, into our lives. The last word of verse 5. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God doesn't just love us at arm's length. And it's different than any other religion out there. Other religions, they have either an idea of a transcendent God who's just always up in the ether that you can never, like, reach out and touch him. He's God, he's transcendent, but he never steps into our lives. Or you get some religions that God is sort of everywhere and impersonal, just a force. And in Christianity, God is neither impersonal, he is personal, but he is also transcendent. So you get both. A transcendent God who does rule and is sovereign, but also steps into humanity and demonstrates his personality. We serve a very unique God, and in that way, Christianity is different from all the other religions in the world. We have a God who 
who knows us in the most intimate way possible. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, stepped into humanity in the likeness of men. And that's an incredible truth. Like, who does that? Someone with the rights and the position that Jesus had laid down those rights to step into humanity. Like, people in our world try to hold on to their position and their power. Like, even if they're not qualified. Jesus, I see some Snickers. <laughs> Jesus lays down his rights, and he's eminently qualified. Like, there's no doubt about his qualifications. Like, he has his resume out. Like, works well in the team. Check. Management experience. Lots of it, actually. Very creative. Highly creative, actually. Like, there's no deficiency in his resume. So he, has, he doesn't have to step down, and yet he chooses to step down. He chooses to lay down his position, to lay down his rights. Why? For the sake of serving his creation. And it's, it's interesting, and this is even a more amazing truth in my mind. It's, it's really mind-blowing. If, let me see if I can articulate it correctly. But there's this idea of the Trinity. God exists in three persons, one God. One being, three persons. Okay? God the Son is one of those persons. He's the second person of the Trinity. Now, God, the Son, has existed forever in the form of God, as Paul writes in Philippians. And yet, at a point in time, Jesus chooses to come down to earth as man and God. Now, what happens from that point forward? He stays a God-man forever and ever and ever, God chose to unite his being with his creation in such a way that that would be a permanent thing forever and ever. This is the definition of investment in a relationship. Like there's no better, there's no better description. There's no doubt that God is invested in his creation when he chooses to send his son to become part of humanity. That's, a, that's just a mind-blowing truth. He doesn't have to, but he chooses to. And this is the first and primary way that we see the love of God demonstrated for us, this personal and intimate relationship that we have with God that he demonstrates in becoming flesh. It's the, tech, uh, the theological word, incarnation of Jesus. But not only that, he demonstrates God demonstrates his love for us in the life that he lived on earth. And let me read from John 13, verse 1. He says, Now before the feast of the Passover, of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus' life that he lived on earth was full of serving, teaching, healing, 
showing mercy, showing his disciples the Father through the obedience that he had to the Father and through the life that he lived in relationship with them. Think about who Jesus loved. Jesus loved both friends and enemies. And, and one of the most striking pictures for me of Jesus' love was when he went to wash the disciples' feet. So he had 12 disciples. And, and, and it's really a, a countercultural like picture of love because a rabbi has a position above his disciples. And in their culture, a rabbi never would have been expected to, to stoop like literally down to that level and wash his disciples' feet. And yet that's exactly what Jesus does. But the, the amazingness of that doesn't just stop there. It's who are his disciples. We know that one of his disciples would completely betray Jesus, and that's Judas Iscariot. And in that story, in, in John uh, 13, we can read it. We're not going to go through the whole story here, but... Judas, that night, betrayed Jesus. Now, it says he washed all the disciples' feet. He didn't just wash the ones that were going to be his boys after the resurrection. He washed all the disciples' feet, including the one who would basically stab him in the back. And, and, the, and the crazy thing is that Jesus knew it as he was washing Judas' feet. This was clearly an enemy that he was serving and loving like, can you imagine that? Imagine if you had a friend that you've known for several years and you're feeding them, you're giving them a place to stay, you're, you're being loving, and, and, and you know that they're going to turn on you? Like, who would do that? I know I would struggle with that. I don't think I would do that. But Jesus' wor Jesus love is otherworldly. Jesus' love is supernatural. Jesus' love is, is mind-boggling and disruptive. And that's the, that's the God. That's the God that we serve is one who would serve even his enemies. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. He served us, but not only did he serve us, he laid down his life. And that brings me to the second point, that, that Jesus not only demonstrates his love for us in serving us, he, he demonstrates his love for us in rescuing us through his death. Our primary passage in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, Jesus has come to save us from our sins. His name means God saves. Now, I want to take you back to this idea of his humble beginnings. Just picture with me uh, Jesus, baby Jesus in a manger. Dusty, dirty, grimy. This is not five-star accommodations. And yet, you have so many uh, pictures of people who are just excited about the arrival of Jesus. You have... Uh, the shepherds who hear from the angels that there is a savior that is common and they're so excited in the midst of their normal shepherding i know i would be uh, get me away from the shepherding let me go see who this 
Jesus is. You have some prophets, some old prophets, uh, Simeon and Anna, who, who hear about Jesus. And they've been waiting their whole lives for Jesus to come. And finally, God gives them a vision that says, you can go meet him at the temple, and they do. And then you have the wise men, you have the intellectuals who are, who are searching for the answer to the universe, and they get a vision of who Jesus is, and they go on a journey and go find this baby Jesus and give him gifts in homage to the coming king. There was this anticipation, this expectation, this hope that the world would finally have a savior. The world would finally have someone who could come and step into the darkness, who could step into the brokenness and actually bring healing. We know that the world is not the way it ought to be, and Jesus is the one who comes in and promises rescue. Now, how does Jesus save? How does Jesus save? Uh, let's go to 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. I'm going to read from uh, the Christian Standard Bible translation. Verse 9, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The how, how does Jesus save? Through the atoning sacrifice. Now, some of your translations will say propitiation. And that's a fine translation. Um, it's just a word we just never use. And so atoning sacrifice is hard enough to explain, so I'm going to go with that rather than propitiation. But we are talking about propitiation for those who care about that theological term. Now, the idea of atonement, to put it simply, is to make right what has been wronged. That's what atonement means. So when you put it together, atoning sacrifice is a sacrifice that makes right what has been wronged. That's the idea. That's how Jesus saves. Jesus makes right what has been wronged through his death. That's the idea of atonement. Now let me go deeper. How does that happen? What does that look like? Let's go back to the car crash example. Okay? guy wasn't looking maybe he was texting or whatever who knows he didn't see the red light smashed into me okay now let's say there's no insurance involved clearly he's committed a wrong how does he make right what he made wrong he pays up right he caused thousands of dollars of damage to my property the way that he can make right what has been made wrong is to pay up. Now, he can respond in a few different ways. He could respond by saying, I didn't do it, or I don't care, and I'm not paying. That's one way. And, 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 and what's going on here are two things, all right? And I want to, this is, this is unpacking what propitiation means, what atoning sacrifice. There's damage to my car, so there's something that's broken with that, okay? But there's also 
relational tension between me and this guy. There's something that's changed in the nature of our relationship until he fixes what's happened, right? I'm not satisfied until there's some acknowledgement and some effort to make right what's wrong. And the Bible calls that wrath. You hear that, the wrath of God. That's all it is. I think some, some people get tripped up by this, this word wrath because, and I think myself included, we see wrath as like this, like, uh, just, uh, like this beast who's in the cage and, and God's just waiting to get at people and tear them up to shreds. And, and that's, I don't think that's the picture of wrath. I think wrath is more like a judge. And the judge looks at the facts and says, you know what, you broke the law. These are the consequences. And God's, God's always in control of who he is. He's, he's never like this uncontrolled sort of beast. He is God. He is sovereign. He does set what's right. But he's fully in control of every action he takes. And he's been clear from the beginning of what is right and what is wrong. And when we live in sin... It deserves God's wrath or God's judgment. And we get it. You know, humans basically, we try to articulate rightful punishments. In in the example of the car, it's pretty easy to determine that it's a monetary payment that would satisfy that situation, that would make, make, uh, make right what is wrong. But what happens if you add some more, uh, some more details to that story? What if he, what if he hit me intentionally? What if, what if I was physically hurt? What if I had recurring nightmares for the rest of my life? What if I was hurt in such a way that I couldn't be fixed? Then all of a sudden, simply writing a check is not going to cut it. And it becomes much more complex to determine what is the right thing that makes something, or or what is the thing that makes something that was wronged right. And we have a justice system, and and in our best ability, we've tried to determine that. Everything from, you know, a fine to, to life in prison or even death, depending on the nature of the wrong. But God has already determined that perfectly. He says, the wages of sin is death. See, sin is an offense against God. That that, that we've broken something in that, that dynamic, in that relationship that we have with God. And God says the, the penalty for that, the, the, judge, the appropriate judgment for that is death. But the beautiful thing is that God doesn't stop there. And he could. But the good news about Christmas is that though God rightfully pronounces judgment, at the same time, there's a superseding principle, and that principle is love. That he says, I'm going to unite myself with my creation because I love them, and I'm going to enact the plan that would satisfy the appropriate judgment for their sin. That is the sense in which Jesus saves us for our sins. He actually comes in, he pays the penalty on our behalf because he dies the death that we deserve to die. Jesus came to rescue us. There's nothing that we could do. We try to, to, to 
have the right insurance. We try to do the right decisions. We try to have the knowledge or have the resources to get ourselves out of the jam, but, but we need to recognize that we don't. That the whole import, the whole point of Scripture is to point us to Jesus and his love for us, his sacrifice to save us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. While we were still sinners. And this is an extension of the same character that Jesus displayed when he's washing the feet of Judas. Jesus came to die for us. Not, he didn't wait for us to get right first. Does that make sense? He didn't wait for us to shape up. We were in the midst of doing our own thing, like folding our hands and saying, nope, I didn't do it, or I did do it and I don't care. And in the midst of that, Jesus came and says, I love you. I want to be with you. I want to pursue you. I'm going to die for you. Accept my grace. Accept my forgiveness. Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. There was, um, some of you may have heard of an English sailor named John Newton. He lived from uh, 1725 to 1807. And this sailor, he was taught about Jesus when he was a little boy by his mom, but his mom died when he was like seven years old. And so he ended up following his father in his trade, which was to be a sailor. And I don't know if you've heard, but sailors don't always have the best of reputations. And, and back then, they, they had even a worse reputation. And John Newton stood out as being the worst of the worst. It was said of John Newton, uh, in his, his, his foul mouth, this was written about him. Newton was admonished several times, not only for using the worst words the captain had ever heard, but creating new ones to exceed the limits of verbal debauchery. How's that for a description? John Newton, if you know, he was also later after his time serving in the Royal Navy, became captain of a slave ship. And he sailed many journeys taking uh, people from Africa to Europe and other countries where uh, Africans could be sold into slavery. And he did it with enthusiasm. One day he was sailing a ship and they were in a vicious storm. And they were fighting for days and days to try to bail water out so they wouldn't capsize. And they got to a point where they realized that they were going to capsize. And they were going to drown and they were going to die. And sort of as a passing aside, he said, they ran out of options. They said, Lord, have mercy on us. And they tried this option that shouldn't have worked. But lo and behold, two weeks later, they got to their destination. And John Newton reflected on that moment and recognized, I should have been dead. I was rescued. And he connected that. He saw that, he saw God stepping into his disaster and saying, I want to know you. Your time is not up yet. I'm pursuing you. Most of us, who have heard of John Newton, know him as the famous hymn writer. 
and he wrote one of the most well-known hymns in all of the world, Amazing Grace. And he wrote that uh, as a testimony, almost like an autobiography of his own life. John Newton was rescued from his wretchedness. And the good news is that we can also sing with John Newton, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. At the end of his life, John Newton wrote, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. It's amazing, the, the juxtaposition, the, the, you compare and contrast. He was once known for having the foulest mouth amongst all the foul-mouthed sailors of his day to writing these beautiful, God-glorifying hymns. That's what salvation looks like. That's what rescue looks like, to take someone who's completely opposed to God, to, to, to break through that darkness, to show him his grace, and then he's using those same words that he used to curse other people and curse God to now praise God and his amazing grace to come and step into his world when he wasn't caring anything about God. Jesus loved him and transformed his heart to the point where he could sing amazing grace. Christmas is a reminder that Jesus was born to rescue us out of that darkness so that we could also sing of his amazing grace. God's love is demonstrated for us in, in the service of Jesus. God's love is demonstrated for us in Jesus rescuing us. And finally, God's love for us is demonstrated in us being empowered by Jesus. Empowered by Jesus to love like Jesus. Jesus, in the time shortly before he was crucified, took one last time to, to, to tell his disciples the, the things that they needed to know before he went uh, to be crucified and before he went back to be with God the Father. Uh, we read some of these last commandments in John, uh, starting in John chapter 13. We'll look at verses 34 through 35. Jesus says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And what I want to look at is uh, Peter, one of his disciples. I just want to look at Peter's life for a little bit. Now, Right after Jesus gives this command, okay, new commandment I give to you, love one another just as I have loved you. So that's the principle. I've loved you, now you respond in loving other people as I have loved you, sacrificially, generously. Now, Peter, after hearing this new commandment to love, it seems like Peter understands what's going on. And so in uh, <clears throat> the next verse, chapter 13, verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. And Jesus is talking about 
crucifixion. Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. So Peter understands what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I'm going to die. And Peter's saying, I'm going to die with you. Like, I'm your boy. I got your back. I'm dying with you. And Jesus is like, eh, you will later. But you're going to deny me first. In fact, you're going to deny me three times. And he might say, you know, if you just look at the words Peter says, you might say, oh, Peter's got it. If you didn't know the rest of the story, like Peter understands, he, he really loves Jesus. He's going to lay down his life for him. But he doesn't. He denies Jesus. When it, when it comes down to it, and Jesus is faced with death, and he was betrayed by Judas, Someone else, they identify, they, they saw Peter say, oh, Peter, you were with Jesus, right? Like, you're Jesus' boy. Peter said, no, no, mm-mm. I don't know who he is. I've never seen him. And a second time it happens. Like, someone hears him by his voice, like he's talking, he has an accent, right, that's identifiable from where he came from. He's a Galilean. Oh, you know Jesus, right? You speak like him. I don't, know what, I don't know what you're talking about. And the third time, and the third time someone asks, accuses him, you're, you're with Jesus, you're one of his followers, and Peter says, he cusses. Like, heck no, I'm, I don't know this guy. And one of the gospels recorded that at this point, he saw Jesus' eyes, because he was kind of curious. You know, he's kind of still falling around. He wants to know what happens to Jesus, and Jesus looks at him, And all of a sudden, Peter recognizes his sin. He remembers what Jesus said. And his heart's broken. That despite his good intentions, despite this outward show of bravado and courage, that he was still weak. He was still a sinner. He still needed help. And and Peter is encouraging to me because he's real. Our lives are like ups and downs. Sometimes we're rah, 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 we love Jesus and we're going to go die for him. And then the next minute, I don't know, Jesus. I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing. Jesus, or Peter, had good intentions. We often have good intentions. We want to do right. We want to obey God. But sometimes it's so hard. Sometimes we mess up. Sometimes we make mistakes. So the question is, how do, we, how do we love like Jesus loved when we make mistakes? When we don't want to, quite frankly, sometimes. Our heart's not in it. How do we love like Jesus loved? We look to Jesus to be empowered by his obedience. Jesus says... John chapter 14, verse 31, But I do as the Father commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus was saying that what I do, I obey the Father. Why? Because I want the world to know that I love the Father. So Jesus was demonstrated perfect obedience, something that we can't do. But our obedience 
Our obedience is not the basis for our acceptance. But rather, our obedience flows from our acceptance. John, or Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. There is an order of operations here. The order is Jesus first loves. And then we're appointed to bear fruit. We're appointed to love in the way that Jesus loves. Jesus' disciples were not looking for Jesus. Jesus was looking for them. And once he found them, he served them, he taught them, he showed them mercy, he showed them the Father, and he loved them to the end. And with that abundance of love, then we're called to obey out of that response to Jesus' love. And John, uh, to finish uh, John, 1 John chapter 4, to continue that passage that we're in, verse 10, love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love God one another. Jesus' love for us empowers our ability to love. We start not with our love, not with our obedience. We start with Jesus' love for us, and that empowers our ability to love others. Loving in this way Loving like Jesus' love is, is a scary thing for me. I don't know if it is for you. Uh, partly might be personality. I'm an introvert, so I don't like engaging with people naturally. So, so when I'm called to love in this way, it's scary. It, and it's scary for several reasons, not just because I'm an introvert, but because I know I'm a sinner, And so I'm afraid that if I engage in people this way, that I'll sin against people in a way that hurts them. Because I know I've done that in the past. I'm also afraid that someone else might hurt me. That if I open myself up to really engaging in a relationship deeply to love someone, that I open myself up, I open my heart to be be wounded. And that's also scary. But I also fear being inconvenienced, right? There's, there's just preferences that I have. There's, there's personal time that I want. And so I know that loving in this way costs me something. It's sacrifice. It costs me my convenience. It might cost me my comfort. It might cost me my preferences. And so this is a scary thing for me. And I wonder if it's a scary thing for some of you. Because when you engage in relationships like this, all these things happen. Life's messy. You get in, when you get involved with people at a deep level, you will sin against people. They will sin against you. It will be inconvenient. It will be uncomfortable sometimes. And, and there's a temptation for me at, at different times in my life, I felt this more strongly, a temptation for me to be uh, what I would call a holy hermit. 
this, this sort of blissful idea that I would just be by myself and I would just raise my hands and worship to God and sing praises to him and just stay to myself and be in my corner being a holy hermit. The problem is that there's no such thing as a holy hermit. Because what's missing from that equation? It's love. It's like the epitome of selfishness. It's this sit yourself in a corner and never talk to anyone, never really be invested in anyone, never really be interested enough in other people's struggle. And, and, and at different times, God's convicted me of that, that that's exactly what um, I was wanting. That was my idea of peace. That was my idea of comfort, that I could just have this spiritual experience alone with God. And, and God is saying to us that if Jesus can come down and enter into our struggle and love us in the way that he loved us, sacrificially, generously, laying down his position, laying down his rights, then, then we ought to also love like that. And, and the good news is that Jesus doesn't just, like, tell us what we should do. He demonstrates it, and then he empowers us to do it. He, he gives us his Holy Spirit to help us in that. And if you look at the story of Peter, like, Peter's story doesn't end in denial. It doesn't end with him denying Jesus. What happens? He repents. He's heartbroken. And when Jesus uh, is crucified and he's risen from the dead, he doesn't just ignore Peter. Oh, he turned his back on me. I'm not going back to him. He goes back to Peter. And he embraces Peter as a friend. And Peter is embracing Jesus as a friend. His heart is changed. And, and in the first sermon given in the Christian church, Peter gives that sermon. And he preaches the gospel, the good news of Jesus come to save sinners. And 3,000 people believed in Jesus based on the preached word that Peter was preaching. He was redeemed. He was given new life. He was given an ability to follow Jesus. And from then on, Peter was perfect until he died. No, that's not true. <laughs> that's not true. Later on, guess what Peter does? He's guilty probably of, of prejudice, maybe racism. Later on, there's a story where Peter um, uh, uh, chooses not to eat with the Gentiles because he's worried about what other people would think, his Jews, his Jewish friends would think. And Paul calls him out. Paul says, you're not acting in accordance with the gospel. And Peter repents again. And so Peter's just a wonderful illustration of someone who is successful and then he fails. And then he's successful and then he fails. But at the end of the day, what Jesus said about Peter came true. Jesus said, you will not follow me now, but you will follow me. And tradition has it that Peter did, in fact, die for the cause of Christ. He was crucified upside down. And it's a testimony that what God starts in someone he finishes. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. The beginning and the end of it. So yeah, we go through struggles, but we can be encouraged that God is with there because he, he stepped into our lives through Jesus and he doesn't leave us alone. He didn't go back to the Father and said, now you got it, you do it on your own. He says, I will be with you until the end. 
And that's the encouragement we can take. Not that we do it in ourselves, but, but that his power is made perfect in our weakness. So that when we fail, we, we remember, wait a minute, God still loves us. Wait a minute, God still cares for us. I can get back up again, just like Peter got back up again and pursued the things of Jesus. That's the God we serve. And as we think about Christmas, I want to encourage us to remember the love that Jesus has for us. The love that Jesus demonstrated in serving us humbly, stepping into our world, loving even us when we're not, we don't seem lovable. Like, that's a lie, by the way. If you feel like I'm so sinful that Jesus can't love me, that's a lie from the enemy. And I want you to hear that. Like, the gospel says that Jesus loves the unlovable because of his love. We don't do anything before to be deserving of that love. That's why it's called grace. It's undeserved favor. So that's a lie if anyone's believing that. Jesus served us by rescuing us, loved us by rescuing us from death. And finally, he's empowered us through his Holy Spirit to love like he loves. Not perfectly, but on the basis of his perfect love and his working in us, he will bring us to holiness and he will bring us to glory in eternity. That's the hope that we have. Let me pray for us. Father, I, I thank you for I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. Lord, I, I pray that you would help us uh, to, to grow in our knowledge of the love that you have had for us and that you have for us. Lord, I'm reminded of reminded of the, the multifaceted and multidimensional and expansive love, the great love, Lord, that you have for us. And, and Lord, I know that you want us to know that love and to know you. And so I pray, Father, that you would help us to take your words with us as we celebrate Christmas with our families and with our friends. Lord, as we uh, share meals together as we uh, open presents together, Lord, as we uh, watch TV and veg out, Lord. Um, whatever we do uh, in this Christmas, I pray that you would help us to, to remember uh, your good news, to remember that you came to love us, and Lord, that your love is unstoppable, that your love triumphs over our failings, that your love triumphs over our weaknesses, that your love uh, triumphs over our pain and over our suffering, that your love rules the day and will win out in the end. Lord, help us to know this. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, at this time, we also...